Hey everyone, welcome back to the Art Grind Podcast. This is season five and I'm here with Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. All right, Dina, take it away. All right, guys. So this is an interview with Justin Hopkins. In case you don't know who he is, he's an absolutely amazing artist who is good at absolutely everything. So he started practicing art professionally age 14 and he's kind of shifted between music and film and painting and drawing and animation. He is has also been the co-host of the Artist Decoded podcast, which is fantastic, uh, and is the co-founder of the artist collective, Noah Wave. Am, am I getting it all, Marshall, or did I miss one of the many, many things that Justin's good at? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, he's sort of a jack of all trades and a master of all of them, too. Like, it was really interesting to see someone shift seamlessly between disciplines like that and do them in such a high level, each one from the early days of illustrating for movies to gallery artists to now producing and making his own films that are just like super interesting and really involved. And it's, I think it'll be a great listen for everybody to kind of gain some insights from someone who has, has that much acumen at switching between these disciplines. So enjoy it guys um enjoy it we actually recorded this last year as we were kind of heading into the first long dark night of the soul of last winter yeah marshall it looks like we're heading into another one yes we're here for you on this new long dark night of the soul so keep tuning into the podcast we'll be we'll keep releasing them for you bye what were you doing in new york were you just painting were you in school there what what was your thing I was a, I did it. I worked at a design company and I did painting basically only had that, uh, that place in like office in Soho where I used to paint out of, and then at our apartment uh, and uh, just paint all night and then do design work all day. So all I did. Yeah. So that was cool. It was right, uh, right across the street from Arcadia. Okay. We had a, a, a 58 green. Like, down the block. So they let you paint there at night for where you worked? Oh yeah. I mean, it was just a Lucy. It was just like a design studio full of a bunch of other creative ish people. So I just would set up my stuff there and paint there. And it was a lot bigger than our apartment. So any of the big stuff I would just do over there. They didn't mind at all. They, they, they kind of thought of it as like a novelty or something, you know, I think they kind of liked having me do that. I would, do that sometime all day instead of just the design stuff whenever things were slow. So and you're from, uh, I feel like I read an interview with you at, at some point. Um, is that, are you from the West coast originally? Yeah, I was born in Santa Monica, but I was, uh, I grew up in Washington in the up 25 miles North of uh, Seattle. Okay. So what was your family yeah. like? Are you, are you from a bunch of descended from a bunch of artists or? Yeah, I am. My dad was a, a pretty uh, well-known artist back in the 80s. Did a bunch of movie posters. Like the posters drew strews and didn't do a lot of them. My dad did. And then my mom is a, is, uh, is, the, is we, I consider her and my dad considers her the real genius artist of the family. She is, she does museum work all over the world and She's like a sculptor using only organic materials and things like that. So, um, yeah, my, my, my whole family, or at least my parents are both artists, working artists, and that's all they've done for the last 30, 40 years. Wow, so. that's very unique. What, what's your mom's name? 
Uh, Jan Hopkins. Oh, if anybody's listening to this, look up Jan Hopkins. She's going to be amazing. Yeah, she is really something. Uh, Jan, Jan Hopkins and my dad's name is Chris Hopkins. He did like uh, Indiana Jones posters and stuff like that back in the oh, back when the air. That's great. I remember those. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, they so did stuff like that, Star Wars and stuff like that. Did he teach you how to paint? Uh, yeah, yeah. When I was young, because uh, he used to teach at Art Center as well. Okay. In past, so I uh, when I was really young, I uh, he taught me from when I was like ten to fourteen, and then I I started uh, taking his uh, illustration jobs that he was like too busy for. So I would was learning to be an illustrator in high school. My main job in high school was a I fluctuated between being a pizza delivery guy and then an illustrator, and then I just saved up a bunch of money illustrating, and then moved to. LA um as soon as I turned 18 but he so he taught me and then I learned on the job from there wow when I was a kid yeah was it was it fun then was art fun for you or was because it seems like it got commercial so fast like was it uh yeah I mean it was fun it was fun having a cool job it was fun it was fun like being a kid and feeling like you know the kid at school who had like an like had an adult job I mean, art was always a way for me to escape things because I liked world building and things like that. And I would, um, I would do these illustration jobs. And it, it, for me, getting that kind of money was like, I felt like a, a millionaire as a kid, you know, because illustration at that time, you could make quite a bit of money. Um, so I was doing that, like doing like silly stuff. But as a religious man yourself, <laughs> I... <laughs> awards when I was a teenager for just nativity scenes. Oh. I did that for four years, like from age 14 to age 17. I designed the, the uh, Costco nativity scenes. Really? Silly. Oh, that's so <laughs> cool. <laughs> I still have some of the little drawings of like, you know, the, the wise men holding like, it's silly. It's silly, silly stuff, but it, uh, it, it was cool for back then. For sure. That's awesome. But, it would have been fun to like go by Costco and see your work there. That would have been great. I mean, cool for me, you know, when I thought, when I thought that sort of thing was cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I still think it's cool. Um, I grew up completely a-religious. These, these, they're so meticulous and there's so much attention to detail and it almost is like world building with a very concrete set of elements. But that set of elements can mm-hmm. kind of turn into anything depending on how good the artist is. So, um, Costco was lucky to have you. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, I I uh, back then um, I was mostly interested even then in filmmaking. So when I learned how to draw and stuff, because we didn't come from a lot of money, because they're both working artists, I, I saw art also um, as the world building practice for because I couldn't I couldn't achieve filmmaking because I wasn't a rich kid so also art felt like the closest thing or visual art painting was the closest thing I could get to that so that's how I ended up doing that pouring all my that I think you could you could sort of draw in your own explosions without any production value (laughs) I didn't really understand how you got into stuff like that so I would just design all these characters design all these little worlds and stuff like that so I got really meticulous and that's why I was well suited for the nativity stuff, I think. <laughs> but, but film was all, even back then, film was sort of your passion. 
Yeah, I mean, we, me and my sister made a film and we got in all, like when I was 15 and we got in all these film fests and uh, um, Reggie Watts, when he was living in Seattle back in the day before he was a comedian, he was like a soul singer. And he uh, opened for our film at the EMP. Um, and I thought that was going to be the start of something, but then I got sucked into the illustration world. And, and then I was there for, until uh, I was 26 years old or something like that. So like, Solid 10 years, I was in the just pure illustration. Uh, yeah, yeah. And did, Weird. Did, you go to art, did you go to art school? Or, you know, did, did you have enough training where you could just get these jobs and you kind of, you know, you could skip that step? Yeah, I, I out of high school, I got, I, the reason why I moved to LA is because I got a job at this architectural design company called Olio Inc. with this guy named Charlie White who did the first um, Star Wars poster. And uh, so I got a job right out of high school drafting and doing concept design for, um, for resorts. And like, have you heard of uh, Atlantis, Dubai or Atlantis, Bahamas? Sounds mm, familiar. Their claim to fame is that they at the time had the world's largest aquarium because that was a thing people wanted, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I was doing like renderings and stuff for that and we had designed languages because it had to look like some kind of alien. Like it was silly, but it was like doing like um, concept design for uh, an illustration for um, essentially theme parks, like really, really high end, rich people theme parks. Which again felt cool at the time. Feels less cool now, but <laughs> so you were like drawing was, fish, like as if you're looking up at them and looking right at them in the tanks and stuff. Well, we well mostly what our job was to do was like take the the architectural design that they had and create a world around it. Like we had to create a a, a language that had to be decipherable by us or have some kind of logic. It's like kind of like designing a Star Wars movie that you could walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did all the cladding and all stuff like that. And like, there's a crashed ship here, so we had to design the ship and how the like it had to look believable. And um, and then I did all the sound design. So when you walk through, you could hear echoes of whatever happened in there in the past. So it was like doing like a, a, a an immersive museum experience. So that's that's kind of was my world from like eighteen to twenty three. Was that sort of hmm. cons- illustration? It seems like yeah. that would help with the films too. It seems like all the stuff you're picking up is is heading towards that. Yeah, that's that's the weird part. That's the weird part. So it just feels, even though I've hit this space late, everything, like whether it comes from like the uh, the painting or sound design or illustration, it all kind of leads towards this end uh, end goal anyway. So worked out fine. Uh, and what happened next? So you're 26. You're you know you're a successful illustrator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 26. I I. I fall in love with this person who's going to become my wife. And then I moved to New York and I was like, um, so a couple of years before that backing up, I was doing this overlap of fine art painting and illustration. Cause illustration was, is a terrible job for someone like me. I, I, I grew to hate it and resent it so much. That I was like, I just want to do whatever I wanted, what I want to do. And then I started painting and then moved to New York and New York was vastly more expensive than I was hoping it would be. So I had to take that, design job and then continued painting at night and then just kept on building and showing all over the place. And then me, I think when I was 26 or 27, me and Emilio and, 
Daniel Segro, Emilio Villalba and Daniel Segro started our thing called the Low Collective, where we started doing our own shows and do, setting up shows in LA and New York and um, in Spain. And uh, then we just did that for a while. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I've always meant to ask, I, I've known all of your work for a while and all three of you are fantastic artists. Why was it called the Low Collective? Uh, low came, like, so Low was about, because there was a book called Low by this guy named Charles Fort, <laughs> which is about low, look, like the whole low look and also low res. And uh, <laughs> it was just, it just felt cool. It felt like it was easy to say and easy to remember two letters. And it was, the first, uh, the first word uh, transmitted through the internet, which is how we met. Um, and uh, it was also the name of the Charles Fort book, Low, which was short for Lo and Behold, Look and Behold, as in Pay Attention, right? And, so. how, and, and how, so how did you guys meet? Instagram. <laughs> Instagram felt kind of new at the time. We all had like sub a thousand people paying attention to us. And we're like, oh, we should just... We should take this more seriously probably because it feels like something that uh, actually something that artists can connect with uh, like for the first time. Facebook didn't really make sense to us. So we just, uh, we met through that and started um, DMing and then, you know, jumped into the phone and then jumped into reality and jumped into actual friendship and then things blossomed from there, you know, and then, yeah, things happened how they happened. Um, so, so you guys basically just found each other's stuff and it's like, oh, this seems like a person that, you know, I like as a painter, this is my kind of person. And then, then it turned out that you're each other's kind of person in real life. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that I have a pretty good, I can't speak for the other guys, although I, I, I feel like I can, that there's, you can kind of like see what kind of people people are by how they approach things and how committed they are and to what aspects they're committed to. So I had a feeling I'd be friends with Emilio and that's how we started first. And then he showed me Daniel's work. He's like, I think this guy's got the same thing, whatever that may be. And, um, and then that's, that's how it started is just us kind of me and Emilio's friendship. And then us courting Seagrove in as like this kind of young, at the time, I think he was like 22 or something. And just like, wow, this, this young guy's super good. And uh, we need him to be, you know, attached to us so we could be attached to the future. (laughs) Very shrewd. (laughs) You know, it's exciting to find someone young. It's always exciting to find someone young who seems like they already are fully formed. So you're just like, ooh, I want to figure out that special thing. So that was kind of what it was. It wasn't really businessy. It was just exciting, you know, Finding, finding the new young talent feels exciting. What, what did you hate so much about illustration? Um, I hated that mostly illustration came down to how I had to navigate the client-illustrator relationship and how at a certain point, although it became, it was so craft-heavy that I felt like more of a set of hands and a brain because I had pigeonholed myself in this situation where when I was young, I, I prided myself on being able to do anything. Like if I needed to rip off Norman Rockwell, I could do that. If I needed to rip off Arthur Rackham, I could do that. And then it felt like there was no uh, voice for me. And then it's just a day job. I became really good at a day job. And then I started hating it so much because uh, it felt 
purely like something that was so close to the thing I'd love to do, but also not at all the same brain mechanics that go into uh, conceptualizing, which is really what I think I'm good at, um, that I just kind of resented all the jobs. I spent all this time and uh, decades at that point, even though I was young, d- developing this craft, you know, and I put it all towards an armadillo holding a beer bottle so felt kind of empty to me, you know. <laughs> it's not really – it just paid rent in, a, in a, an apartment that I hated. So I was like, <laughs> eh, why am I doing this? It's, it's you. If you ask yourself why enough and the answer is I don't know enough, you should probably change your life. So I, I did. <laughs> Man, it's amazing you did that, though. I feel like so, mu- so many of us just keep going you know, whatever, whatever situation we're in. I think 10 years is a good enough time to, you know, marriage after that. I think you've, you've put in your hours to know if it's for you or not, you know? <laughs> so then it sounds like you started shifting a little to fine art. Was it, has that been satisfying? Do you like that world? I definitely did. I mean, I like, I, 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 I tend to find these things that are really exciting. Then after a while, the business aspect of it bothers me. Like, like the becoming a set of hands and devaluing my own brain is what killed my illustration. And then hating the gallery system, even though gallery system is dying, uh, really was bothering me too, because I, I became, came into the situation where people liked a very specific thing I was doing. And it was actually really detrimental to my health. For a while, I was doing all these multi-leveled resin paintings, and they're really impressive to look at, not because of me, but just because of the novelty of dimensionality that you could get image and i sold out of those immediately but i was like i don't want to do this anymore it's it's fucking it's giving me migraines i can't sleep even though i'm in a ventilated area it's like i need to change my materials all the time to better my health and and i then i was like am i just sacrificing my health for the sake of home decor is that really art i don't think that's really art so i was like fuck this so i that's a i started my own thing with no wave which is an offshoot of low collective where we could try to develop the rules in which we could sustain ourselves by making our own gallery. Um, and, and that's what we did. And that was successful for as long as until the pandemic and where we had to shut it down. But that was great. Um, but it was just a situation where I don't, it made me question what art was too much to the point where it's like, am I, am I being, am I lying to myself about what my actual purpose is? Am I an artist or am I a craftsman? And then again, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. You look more like a craftsman. I was like, okay, fuck that. So I moved on. That's what I do. That's my, that's, that's my process. Figure it out, figure out how it's uh, fucking me and then get out of it. <laughs> that's amazing. What, what, what I think about you when it, one time that we talked in person years ago is that what you were actually interested in is just building your own universe like the universe where like you talked about the, the like like in which you make the rules and under which you're kind of okay operating until you're no longer operating under, under those rules either uh, um but um you also said that you hate the gallery system can you talk about that a little bit yeah so i have a lot of thoughts on this like i i i, I was in there enough to realize like the things i was gunning for were kind of like illusions and things that were actively destroying the things I loved about art. Like um, for a long time, I was like, oh, I mean, the reason why I do figurative painting is because I like to uh, reference a lot of things from classicism. And also 
allow uh, the viewer to project onto something that is instantly them. And then in that situation, how can you manipulate it to manipulate their feelings? But then there's the, the business aspect of the gallery system, which is figurative painting sell to rich people. So only paint like uh, naked ladies with flowers. And I'm like, it's like, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that. And I, I know why you're doing it because you have a huge overhead and um, and then again, that the the the, the gallerists, the people who are like the art directors and illustration, want to direct how you produce because you need to eat and you need to live. And I hated someone holding that over me. And I get why they have to do that, but it's um, it's something that is not conducive to what I thought was creativity. It was more conducive to my survival instinct, which didn't make me produce my best work. And um, also the galleries have so much power over driving what becomes popular. And usually popularity is driven by the market and the market is uh, controlled by uber rich people. It's shit taste. So I, I had a problem with that too, being, uh, being detrimental to uh, innovation. So that's what's my issue. It's like the building that you were painting in and working on was right across the street from Arcadia gallery. Uh, kind of one of the few figurative outlets out there. How do you feel about that place? <laughs> uh, I've shown there before. Uh, he was always nice to me. I made some very good friends. Like the old director there was is continues to be a good friend of mine, and he was a wonderful guy. Um, but and I don't want to say anything to if if th- this person did anything but be a shrewd businessman towards me, I would I would say it. But mostly he was just a business person and. That is just something I have a an aversion to, you know, for better or for worse, is like someone who wants to control me because it's, you know, I, I just don't like that. And I think Arcadia was good for some people, but I think that kind of person is a very narrow space in the figurative painting world, and I find it to be... Um, too old-fashioned to be uh, to exist in the future, so I think it's like a, an old an old way of thinking that will die out soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. I, the, the figurative art is so limited in that circle, like you're talking about. It's the ladies with flowers and things, and it's always been frustrating that there's this a legit outlet in there that you could paint that and reach a certain level of something. But I feel like with social media now, it's wide open. Like everybody's finding little pockets. Do you, do you see that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. I just wonder what that means sometimes because uh, Instagram was very important to me while Instagram was bubbling and fresh and I was getting all kinds of, uh, um, opportunities and interest and things like that. And, and then as things change and algorithms change, you find yourself kind of shoehorned in this area where you're not reaching the kind of people that are, can be excited by your work. They're the kind of people who, um, and not to paint with a broad brush, but, uh, but to kind of um, that you can, they can see you and they want to see you as a certain thing. And once you've created your persona, they want you to stay in that zone. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, you can find your pocket, but you just have to stick with it, I feel like. And I, 
obviously have gotten aversion to sticking with things. Like I'm like, I'm like so anti that stuff. Like I'm anti style. I don't like style. I like voice. And if I don't can't perpetuate my voice and however I feel like it in whatever medium and I feel pigeonholed, then even those pockets on Instagram can be something that are kind of become stale to me. They're just numbers to me. They're not, they cease to be people uh, at a certain point, And I don't like that feeling. Mm-hmm. So um, you can, you can do that. That's great. And, and a lot of people are built for that. I just, I just personally can't like, I, I have to evolve in these really drastic ways mm. or I'm going to, or I'm going to like decay or something creatively decay. And I, I, I'm, I refuse to do that. Mm. I don't know if that answered your question at all, actually. No, I mean, it, it does in a way because it's like that. Well, I mean, it's funny. Like uh, Dina was looking at my account and I'm, I'm totally shadow banned. Like I don't have many followers, but I think that is for posting some paintings of nudes and stuff. So it's like, there, I guess there's censorship anywhere you turn, you know, people don't see anything. I, I got big time. I lost 10,000 followers in the last six months. I think part of that was because I changed my name to my actual name. And also I, I apparently if you post and I found this out from like developers at, at Facebook and Instagram, that if you post the word algorithm uh, and you also have like too much skin tone in your actual post, then it'll get, it'll get um, like noted and you will, you'll get pushed down. So my friend and I directed this video called Algorithm that is showing in South by Southwest tomorrow. Um, but that I posted and got zero, zero views. And I have, you know, nearly 60,000 followers down from 71,000 followers. Uh, and it got seen zero times. Like, how's that, how's that possible? Huh. How crazy. Happened almost every time I post that thing. If you look at my Instagram, it'll say like 20 likes, 10 likes, 30 likes, or hundred views. And it's just, it's persisted since the release of that thing too. So it's, hmm. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's something that I can't count on anymore. So I don't. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, I've never had a big enough account to really, it never was a factor in my life, but it's, it, the, the stuff interests me, you know. Marshall, your account is pretty big. Instagram censorship actually interests me too, partially because like, I, I, I don't know, because I have this weird niche teaching artists how to like manipulate the Instagram algorithm. Uh, and Justin, I haven't heard of that. Like, like, like I feel like I know what's, I, I, I know what's causing Marshall's account to be shadow banned, but I actually don't know what's doing it to yours. But that, that's an interesting, like I've never heard that before. Uh, I, I can check yours out and just sort of see what I think is going on with it. Check it out, please. I mean, I only know that because the guy we made the music, like the crew we made the music video with are like these Uber programmer hacker people. And they said, oh, yeah, you can't write, you can't call out certain things there or you'll at least have a note placed on you that, that, uh, that they don't want that to be. I don't, this sounds very conspiracy theory-ish and I don't want to be that way because I feel like I'm only kind of understanding, but it's definitely a weird, it's definitely a weird thing that happened. Like it was a drastic, like, like complete gone, like gone. So it was like, 
So I teach this class explaining how to break down the Instagram algorithm algorithm for artists. And I promote it on Instagram where I describe it as the class that breaks down the Instagram algorithm for artists. Um, And that hasn't seemed to make it made a difference, but but maybe I don't have enough skin tone in it. (laughs) That was just their theory. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe it's the fact that uh, any video content that I put up that's about being a director is like not for my audience because the audience I built was on me being a painter. That's probably part of it, but it can't be 98% of everything. Like that's just weird to me. Um, and ours was very anti-algorithm by like, that's the whole point of the video. So I don't know. But uh, your, your no wave is amazing. I'm actually a customer. I bought one of your videos last month. Like the videos, the production is so great. It was uh, Sean painting the Alla Prima portrait. It's just like so nice. Really informative. I like how you can see the palette. You can see the painting. You can see the model. It's just cut beautifully all in like a dark room. It's great. Thank you so much. I'm glad you like it. We have a real big one coming with Sean. They're really beautiful. So... I assume you're you're sort of in charge of uh, directing those, right? Is that am I right about that? I direct them, and um, Yoshino produces them. So, as in, so like on the whole visual thing and the way they feel, that's me and how they the process of coming to Yoshino. So it's definitely a a team effort, but yeah, I direct them at this point. Something I advertise. It's not like the coolest thing I do, but it's helpful, I think, for people. They look gorgeous. Everybody listening out there, go go buy the videos. They're the best. So, so what is the coolest thing you do? I mean, you're a pay, you know, you were an illustrator, you're a painter, you're a director, you do all these things. Um, what do you consider the coolest one at the moment? I think directing is the most interesting thing I do right now because it ties in all those things. Like even when I was learning how to paint, my dad taught me how to compose imagery by um, showing me Akira Kurosawa movies when I was very young. Um, and just like, cause his framing and there's nothing about it that isn't artistically at the highest level. So, um, and then music, I released a bunch of, uh, I used to be predominantly musician, believe it or not, somewhere in that mix. I was releasing records out here on a label in LA and, uh, and I composed for commercials. So it, it, it has, the directing has the audio and the, the, uh, the sensory overload that I need to be. Um, I don't know, to be interested in something at this point. Like um, it, it has a team building social element to it that is like fun because in a painting you're by yourself and you are so in your head. And if you have a thing that um, you, you, at least for me, this is speaking only for me. Um, if I'm just communicating something that's in my brain and I'm just putting it on a thing unless I fuck myself up somehow by like making things extra hard, it's, it becomes very stale for me as a process, not the end result. I'm typically like happy for like a, maybe 12 hours after I complete a painting and then I hate it again. So the point of like um, the process of all this, the art process for me is uh, being consistently compelled and having the compulsion to do this thing that opens up psychic portals for other people. So paintings did that for me for a long time and then got really like almost like dangerously lonely. Um, and uh, that's why I started Low Collective with Amelia. was in this way, the concept was to make it feel like a band. Like we were like in a band. 
and uh, we would do things like musicians would like there's a social element to musicianship that is that is lacking in the visual arts in a lot of ways so um when i got into when i just started doing filmmaking it's more music um visual acting like emotive everything that i love in one single place it's also super hard because it's like uh painting but telling like your individual fingers to uh paint for you in a weird way. I think Fincher said that he said, it's like directing is like painting a painting, but talking to each individual figure by a walkie talkie. That's how you have to direct your crew. It's really difficult. So it's really challenging and, but it's, um, keeps me motivated by the challenge of it. So I don't know. To me, that's the most thing. Do you find that, that it seems like, you know, a theme running through this is doing things and then uh, finding the, uh, them a little static and moving on. I wonder if, if it's the intensity that you love in, in whatever you're creating, like trying to chase that new challenge of filmmaking or new challenge of painting. Do you, do you, do you find you need to be a bit out on a limb to be engaged? I think that's right. I think the thing I'm after all the time is the, uh, the feeling of being a beginner. I think, uh, people like uh, are really afraid of this imposter syndrome thing. Like, people bring it up a lot and I never, I never experienced that. I only experienced like the really uh, addictive uh, fear of fucking up like hugely. And I like having massive stakes, I guess, and in, in doing that, not in the way that like stakes isn't like people with a lot of money want me to like do a certain thing, but just like the stakes of like, um, Oh, I need this not only takes, like extreme craft, but communication skills, you need to be able to um, um, it, it, like kind of grab people's intention in so many different ways. And they have to coalesce in, 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 in this harmony that is both uh, intriguing and compelling and hopefully uncomfortable sometimes that it's, that to me was really interesting. So. That would be the hardest for me. I mean, I'm in the studio all the time, like, like you were, and it feels like, gosh, I'm not learning communication skills in there. And then just like having people do your vision would be so difficult. I can't even begin to think where to start on that. It would be so hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's my favorite thing is it's like, I'm very bored with myself. I don't find myself to be the most interesting person. Not that you, not that any painter does, but like for me, like, I'm the, if I'm the only one talking to you, I, I'm, I'm a pretty boring guy. How am I going to keep learning anything new for myself? So I like working with cinematographers. I like working with lighting people who think like, oh, I'm like very specific. I, like, I want this to happen. They're like, well, if you do that, then you're going to lose this. I was like, oh, I, I didn't think of it like that because I'm too focused on what's here. And it's kind of like in art, like there's a lot of people that go into making your work exist. And it becomes part of like just commonplace to not credit anybody. And it makes sense. Like I'm not going to credit the canvas. I, I have been in the, the, my last few paintings. I credited the guy who made my canvas, the guy who made my paints, all that stuff. But all these materials are painstakingly crafted over like years and years and years. And for me, at least in filmmaking, there's the it, collaboration is built into the, 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 uh, the, uh, the culture of it. So I, I like that aspect of it as well. But 
I don't know. I'm a weirdo. I, it's not for everybody. You know, I'm, I'm specifically a person who finds themselves bored often. Do you find your, your knowledge of, well, you said you learned a lot of uh, composition from Kurosawa, but I'm sure like painting, just the, those compositional elements, do they creep back into your filmmaking in kind of a circle? Do you find yourself referencing old paintings? Always, always. I think being a painter is one of the most vital things you can do for becoming a good visual-oriented director. Uh, because in a weird way, you can understand lighting and mood in a way that a lot of people who go to traditional film school or, or learn how to light and things, um, they think of things as like a technical thing. And, and in painting, there's much more of a mood thing. And all the lighting doesn't necessarily have to, it has to be real and it has to feel real, but you can manipulate it in such a way that would be almost impossible with, um, with like in the traditional thinking of movie lighting. So you have a way of, finding new visuals that I think are not um, really accessible to traditional filmmakers coming up the traditional route. At least that's my experience. And my experience is very narrow in this, my circuitous path to get to where I am. Um, Cause I think, I think Lynch was a, a painter first, right? I think he started out painting. Mm-hmm. And he, and he's one of the biggest innovators in the field, you know, and, and, uh, even Julian Schnabel, who I was not a fan of his 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 artwork, but him as a director is is fantastic. You know, like he's he's really good at maybe because I don't know I don't know his story, but like maybe he's really good at directing people to make his paintings. I don't know, but Bill Bartlett directed a movie. I mean, I'm assuming because he's a painter, he would like the fact that he's a painter is what makes me interested in seeing the movie. It's just just because I'm like I wonder if every scene just looks like a Bill Bartlett painting. <laughs> I don't have any aspirations to direct movies, but I, I tell my students all the time, I think I look at movies more than paintings for, to compose, just like you did with your dad. You know, It feels like I love a gorgeous movie shot. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll have them as still frames and look at them more than paintings. You know, they're just so good. <laughs> who, who are your favorite directors? My favorite directors are... This is going to sound like pretty trite, I feel like, but visually, uh, Andre Tarkovsky, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Um, um, I love John Carpenter, but I love, uh, I don't know. I'd say Tarkovsky right now is the one that comes to mind, but I love like thousands. Of, oh, uh, 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 Robert Bresson is my actually my favorite director, probably. Yeah. Robert Bresson. Kiyoshi Kurosawa, my two favorites right now. It's a great. It's a great. Yeah, they're, yeah. And Carpenter composed music for his movies too. So it's like you're on the. the <laughs> he just makes shit. He makes the effects out of like. Uh, he does. I just love the 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 problem solving. Like in a some like a silly movie, like a B movie, like a Escape from New York, like kind of a shitty, stupid movie. But there's this amazing computer graphics scene that people were trying to figure out for a long time. They're like, how did he do that? Like they didn't have computers back then to create these big vector shapes. And all he did was make the room black and put uh, like fluorescent tape on the edges of cardboard boxes. So it looked like you're flying through vectors. Oh wow! And he just camera. And it's just, it's just the way he had to figure it out with no money at all. And was just incredible to me. So I, I love that kind of scrappy 
elements to making a beautiful image, you know, as silly as the context might be. It's, it's, it's fun for me. I love that too. I love, I don't love, I guess they call those practical effects. I like when it's, when you can tell that they handmade something like even old theater productions, you know, like high school theater when the waves are just like tinfoil moving or something. There's a real magic in that that I love seeing that stuff. Did, did you guys ever mm. see this movie? I mean, it's uh, probably one of the cheesier things ever made, but maybe one of the most beautiful too. Uh, Legend. Uh, Oh, yeah. Okay, but, yeah. but like, you, you know what I mean? It was before any special effects. So all, like the forest is the actual forest, right? And it's so beautiful. Like, yeah. like they're just kind of wandering around this. And the plot is, you know, kind of beside the point. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Tim Curry and, and they, they have those like Lauren, the Alma Tadema's petals like floating through the air. Oh, that, yeah. I can see where directors reference paintings. Like I can tell their mood boards when I look at that stuff. That guy was looking at, Alma Tadema, probably the Hildebrandt brothers, you know, just in the way that they colored their lights and stuff. And there's no way they weren't looking at that stuff. But yeah, Ridley Scott's a really interesting guy because he definitely references paintings in his movies for sure. Like, uh, like the duelists, which came out like around the same time as uh, uh, Barry Lyndon, those both were referencing all old paintings and old compositions and lighting and, you can see it if you watch him. It's like, oh, that's that's interesting. Barry Lyndon's mind blowing. That movie's so beautiful. Amazing, yeah, very very beautiful. Do you, do you ever see yourself getting passionate about painting again? I mean, I'm still passionate about it in a way, but it's just it comes down to hours, you know, hours and time in the day. Like, certainly, film making one single short film is monumentally harder than making it 10 paintings for me um, because there's so much organization that needs to happen just to do it. Like I, I do, I still paint and draw a lot, but they end up being the storyboards and sketches for the crew to figure out how to make. Um, so in that way, I still do it a lot. I just don't post these things as finished pieces. I just do endless studies of things like that. Uh, so I, I still love painting so much, but it's the, the process that I've fallen out of love with the, the loneliness of it, the, the grind, the art grind of it, if you will. (laughs) The grind, it really feels grinding sometimes. So I, I have to, you know, get interested in these other things just to stay mentally healthy. So I am passionate about it in the way that I still reference it all for my own imageries, but. Uh, the process is was a little too uh, disturbing to my mental health for too long. So I'll give it a break. I'll probably come back in a couple of years really serious again, I'd imagine. The way you talk about things, is it's exciting to me. Like I'm enjoying this conversation because it's like you're willing to change, willing to adapt, willing to master all these various you know, disciplines, if you want to call them that. But it, it's, it's quite thrilling, your approach. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> Marshall, I told you you'd like him. <laughs> yeah. Dana did say you know, that, yeah. <laughs> I will say one thing, though, that uh, I think as an artist, a visual artist, we're kind of trained to be afraid of a lot of things. We're afraid of changing our voice. We're change of, afraid of changing our style because we won't sell. We've been have that driven into us for so long. I feel like it kills the artistic spirit. I'm kind of too dumb to be scared of things. 
And then when I, and when I got into filmmaking, the thing that was most interesting is that filmmakers, directors, because they've been beaten to a pulp by their own industry and their own schooling, they don't even consider themselves artists. They consider themselves craftsmen. So when I enter the field as an artist, they see me as someone with superpowers. I'm, I've gotten my way onto sets and being brought into projects because like, oh, he's an artist. He gets it. He has access to things we don't have access to, which is a bunch of shit. They do, they do everything I do, but with 20, 30 to 100 different people helping them. So it's like, it's just a way of thinking in a way, um, a way of kind of proving your worth through this thing that people see as very, very difficult that gives you kind of um, a leg up in a weird way. Like if I was to go through film school and all these, all these projects, there's no way I would have been able to get where I am now in the span of two years um, you know, talking about talking with big companies about making feature films and being in big uh, international film fests and winning awards in the span of two years. If I had done it the other way, there's just no way. It's because the the kind of I've proven myself in this other field, and so I'm already seen as a peer. I, I don't want to speak too much because I I don't see myself that way. But these other directors kind of talk to me as a peer uh, on occasion. Um, because I've proven myself in this other field. So, and it's a field that they respect. Um, it was so much harder to connect with these directors and musicians as when I was in that field, when I was in, as, as a musician, I would talk to, uh, try to connect with these other major producers and they, they have their guards up, right? They're like, Oh, who's this guy who wants some of my brain or my brand or wants to, you know, be a part but when I was a painter, suddenly they were coming to me and they're like, oh, well, I want to know about this. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You didn't give a fuck about me like five years ago when I was making records. But now that I'm this guy here, suddenly you've got this thing that's attractive and exotic and something they don't understand. So it can be an advantage being an artist in other fields is my long-winded point here. So Justin, what are you working on right now? What's kind of the next big thing for you? Well, right now is uh, tomorrow I'm speaking at South by Southwest for, to talk about the, the music video short film that's in the contest over there. And that had gotten the attention of this company that wants to make it into a feature film, weirdly enough, from a music video. So we're, we're developing that. Um, I designed practical effects on a, on a movie that's coming out the 23rd called Doors. And I'm working on a short film about sleep paralysis. And uh, also, I run No Wave. So all that stuff will be going on for... I run No Wave with Yoshina. I don't want to say I run No Wave. That sounds egotistical. But so uh, two shorts. I have eight music videos coming out Friday. Um, and uh, a feature film. Hopefully by the year, it'll be in full development. So those are the big things I've got going now. A lot. You know, right, right before kind of you, you came on, um, I was complaining to Marshall and I was just saying that I feel like, you know, we all do a lot of things. Um, you actually don't mm-hmm. seem to have this problem. Uh, but in my case, I, I, I do a lot of things. I do some of them reasonably well, right? But, but then like, because I do a lot of things, I'm constantly failing at like 
five of any of the 10 things that I'm doing, right? <laughs> like failing and apologizing to people and feeling like I didn't get back to someone, didn't meet a deadline, et cetera. Uh, do you ever have this feeling or is it just you need it, like you're so kind of firing on all cylinders all the time because that's the kind of person you are that you like having, you know, 10 different projects. That's, that's how you live best. Oh, it's an interesting question because the answer is, I don't feel like anybody works their best that way, but um, because I've put myself in this beginner mindset all the time that I feel like it's a couple things. Like there's just a deep interest, like the, the beginners sort of learn constantly learning, constantly evolving and expanding your uh, skill set and your, your superpowers as an artist is addicting. Um, but also, um, I'm not jaded yet by any, any of this particular industry. And also I, um, I need multiple projects so that if I, if I get stuck on one, I can jump to this other one, solve a problem, jump. So I can like finish three different things in the span of a week, not because, uh, because I'm special or I even put two more hours in. It's just literally like just how my brain works. I'll be working on this. As soon as I feel my brain click into autopilot, I'll work for a few more hours while I'm problem solving on this other thing and then jump here do the same process. So I'm like constantly partitioning my brain to solve two problems at once. So it's just a method I've done to survive uh, because paychecks mean a lot to me because I don't have, um, I'm not like some artists, nothing against that, that have money backing them in some capacity. So everything is about survival as well. So it's just, I think how I've trained my brain to work for, to survive and uh, support my family is what it is. So, so for the record, that's kind of what the art grind, the name of this podcast, it's sort of how do you survive, well, partially financially, right? How does anyone make this crazy thing work? But also how do you make it work kind of emotionally or spiritually, et cetera? Like how do you, you know, how does it not become just a grind, right? Like, like how do you keep interested? How do you stay alive in this? And it seems like for you, it's just to kind of keep exploring new things. Yeah, and I think just trying to be as fearless as possible, it's, uh, it's hard to do, but I mean, it's hard for some. For me, like I said, I'm too dumb to be scared of things like that. Because creativity, it's like, it seems so silly to be afraid of art because it's like, you can make the rules. And like, that's the thing I've realized. You can just make the rules and then people will conform around you if you are just fucking knock your head into it long enough and you are have at least some semblance of talent, you know? if you build it, they will come kind of mentality seems to be true in some capacity. I'm not a millionaire, but I'm certainly get to live a, a life that I find interesting. So that's well, good enough I for me. I feel like it is. I think if you build it and spend like five years keeping it alive, then, then they will come. Like, I feel like it takes five years of just sort of doing something consistently to be able to like, I don't know, make a living at it or for people to start wanting that thing. Yeah, probably so. I, I think your advice is better than mine. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, it takes me five years to make anything work. By by f- five years in, you've probably like made five different things work, and maybe found like people for you know who want all of those things. I mean, I, to be fair, like I, you know, there's this whole addressing your privilege kind of situation, and my privilege was that I grew up in a household with two artists that worked full time and made it and made it work had had a beautiful family life 
and and they proved to me that I didn't need to be afraid of being a working artist and having the things that I wanted in life. Whereas I think a lot of people grow up having to fight their family on that, and that lasts a lifetime. So I'm just I don't I wasn't embedded with that fear early on, so I I don't have it. So I think that's my privilege. I, I'm not too afraid. It's like as soon as th- things are stale for me, and like I'm I'm not adding anything to this thing, so I'm, I'm going to leave. And and if I had the the like the, like if I'd been told from like age zero to eighteen that I needed to be a doctor instead, I think that would be constantly in my mind. Like oh, I, I did this thing, and now I have to stick with it because I I I I, I made my staked my identity on it. But I don't know. That's my privilege. Oh. Um, how, how do you feel about the concept of privilege in general? Like, like, do you, do you, um, because I, I don't, I feel like I have all sorts of privileges just from being, I don't know, like growing up in a family where I was loved and where, you know, like, unlike you, my parents probably actually wanted me to be something other than an artist, but then there's also the privilege of like knowing that whatever I choose to be, they would still love me and they would still kind of, you know, like, uh, like, like not exactly embrace whatever I do, you know, I do. The, so my sister is an artist too, right? And for years, like my, 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 uh, my parents accepted the fact that I was going to just wind up painting because I failed at everything else. But she had like, you know, she was academically better and she was getting a double, you know, she got a double major in art and philosophy. And, you know, they would say, well, like, like our older daughter is an artist, but, you know, but the younger one is a philosopher. And at some point my sister is like, I, but I just finished grad school with a painting degree. Stop saying, you know, stop saying I'm a philosopher. But for both of us, we always knew that, you know, we had a place back home and that's a privilege that I feel like in a way is more important than coming from money. Uh, um, as a, but also kind of people talk about privilege as something to feel guilty about. And like, do you ever? Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I do. I think I've just kind of like, be like, oh, well, well, I was very lucky. And, you know, hopefully, like, I can give my kids the same luck. Um, I think it depends. I mean, I think it's good to have the context for understanding the world and where your place is in it. I think will make you better at anything you do, whether or not you're an artist. But as an artist, as your, in my opinion, the sole purpose to, uh, again, open up these psychic portals of connection and be self-reflective and reflective of the people around you and the things around you, it is important to understand your context in life and why it is the way it is and why other people can't excel in the way you can and is it really the things that you are taught. And, and if you just like look at things and understand them and... I think understanding the idea of privilege is important. Like, I think that people can look at um, and at people next to them and see, like, why? Because we're just driven by capitalism, and this, like, the idea of the ultimate kind of success is making all these kinds of money, um, and then you are judging yourself by the success of someone next to you, not knowing that everything they do is funded in a way that um, they don't have to. Like, bread doesn't if you don't succeed you have to worry about um food being on the table and that's how you get trapped in these cycles of creating content to um paper rich people's walls versus create innovation innovation tends to have financial backing Uh, um privilege like myself in the sense that i had um complete um like again a good good role models for what i wanted to do as well as complete uh support and that gives me a one-up on people also in a way that i don't care about 
certain things that other people care about. And that is an advantage. I don't feel guilty about that advantage, but it's good to understand it. I think that's where it comes from. I think I would feel guilty if I used my privilege to exploit other people and I saw it. That's in way you can utilize and leverage privilege where I think you should feel guilty, but simply understanding it, understand the context of things I think is only healthy. Justin, could you talk a little bit more about psychic portals? What exactly do you mean by that art being a psychic portal? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot here, but... <laughs> I, got it. I, I mean, it's like, for me, it's like, when, what's the point of making a painting? The pa- point of making a painting is, to me is not to make a pretty thing, to prove that I can do a thing. The point of uh, making a painting is to elicit some sort of response. And at some at some point there's a connectivity between the artist and the viewer and, and it becomes a collaboration in that you do not have control over their, what they bring to their, the painting. You do not control what kind of life experience they had to where if you show uh, 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 like something that is a violence, some uh, like, a, like you scratch up the painting or you like have a broken window or something, you do not control how those people interpret that. Um, but what you can do is direct people through this experience and thereby um, creating a, con- a conjoined message, like their experience plus your experience. Um, and that, to me, creates this link between that person and the artwork. And the art- artwork being a direct derivative of you, you I feel like as a, as a good artist, like you can be an artist and not do this, but as a good artist, you like imbuing your artwork with, something that is um, intrinsically you. So if someone like connects to that thing, they're connecting with you, thereby opening up a psychic portal. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's great. That, that, that sort of reminds us of the, what we were talking about with Doug. Remember, Dina? Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he describes, like he uses those words, he uses the word magic, actually, uh, to describe mm-hmm. art, which, which I really like and which kind of reminded me about why we all went in, into it to begin with. Marshall, you had a question about one of Justin's titles, and I want you to ask it. Oh, yeah, I love this title. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to complete my thought in that, like, all this is about connectivity for me. It's like, I'm not painting to not connect with people. I'm not painting to put things in a closet. You would not be talking to me if I had put all my paintings in a closet. Um, so that's the point. So opening up psychic portals with as many people as possible, as diverse as possible, um, in as, in as effective ways as possible is, is why I do it, which is why I got into film because for me, film is just empathy simulation machines, empathy simulations for people to put themselves in different character shoes for two hours or the length of a series. And that's a responsibility that I think people should have when they're doing this stuff. Uh, is to increase empathy. So that's what I mean. If I if I had to add a little extra subtext to it. Well, yeah, I don't. I I, I kind of like what we're talking about right now. Like, in you said, basically, like empathy machines. If you're responsible about it, do, do you think that certain art does create? You also said it can join. So, like the painting the viewer, something conjoins there and creates a new thing. But based on the artist's intent or practice or something, I feel like, me personally, you could create better. It conjoins better. It, it meets the viewer a little better. Do you, do you agree with that? 
Totally. Totally. I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do that. Like, like again, I, I utilize the, the methodology of figurative painting in a lot of ways to subvert. Like there is a certain tradition there that, again, you see the human form, people tend to have a tendency to connect to it. You see an eyeball, you look at the eyeball. It's just what people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but through that, if you get somebody to pay attention and you have craft, all that craft shows people is like the variable of time imbued into the piece. So like if you put a lot of time into something, that means thereby means a lot of care. Therefore, people want to look at it more closely because of the detail. So you have their attention longer and you can hide little things in the, whether it be the actual technical narrative of the piece, like how you've damaged, how you've applied the paint or the actual compositional narrative and guide their eye around some things. So I do think that like craft and high level of craft are only great tools in your belt. And if you're able to subvert that in a way, once they're there, then I think that's even more powerful. I don't know if that was what your question was, but. No, you, you answered it in one way. Great. I have a follow-up. So you're like someone, when I, when I look at your work, I do connect with it and I connect in a way of craft, but I also connect in the way of, I see your intent. And now talking to you, I feel like you're a really interesting person who is intent is to be the best artist they can in terms of being the most engaged with what they're doing. Like you always talked of it as like making you sick when you're not engaged or when it atrophies a little bit. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. I, I talked to someone, that guy, Doug, actually, Doug, who was on the show, he didn't think intent really mattered, but I think your intent matters in the work you're doing because it meets me in a different way than just zero intent or bad intent, if that could even be a word, just all the different types of intent you could have. Do you feel like that matters as well? I think that's almost the only thing that matters. Like, because like in the sense that, again, like craft bolsters that intent. Like I, I'm thinking of the, the variables of what you have, like in music, you have the time variable, you know, that you hit, you hit this thing here and you have to get people engaged here. Art, you don't have that variable of time in the, in the traditional sense. So you have to utilize it to get your intent across. So therefore I put the craft into it so that I catch them longer to deliver my intent. I, I don't understand the lack of intent thing. I, that to me is like so nonsensical that I, I can't understand it. I would love to talk to that person so I can understand how that makes sense. Like if you just wander through life as a robot and just you're essentially amounting to putting shit in a river because, because uh, art is so fucking wasteful, then, then that to me is irresponsible. And I don't want to think that's what he's saying. But like that to me is is crazy. Um, but I can't. I, I can't. I didn't quite understand it either. And and I'm glad to hear you say that because it's like I, I'll use you as an example again. Like there's something exciting about looking at your work and talking to you as well about your character making your work. That came in the work before I knew you. And it's just like, how, what is that? Thing? There's something being cun- communicated to me that's inspiring and it has to be intent, you know, it has to be. Yeah, it has to be. People can feel it. People can feel a stale painting, you know, a shitty stale painting. You can tell people are in the late parts of their career when they don't give a fuck anymore. Same with movies, you know, feel it. You can feel when people cease to care. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why I'm doing stuff. If I have no 
no reason to do a thing, I'll stop doing it. When I stopped having anything to say with music, I stopped it. When I had nothing more to say in painting, I stopped it. I'll come back. I know it because it's in there, but I don't have it right now. So why waste my time and other people's time? Again, putting shit in a river, making more, putting more turpentine in the, killing more mongooses to do bullshit. Like that's, you have a responsibility and I think it's, I think it's horseshit to not have intent, but again, I don't know this. I don't know. this. Like, I'm not talking ill of him. Just the, the point that I'm receiving is upsetting. It's upsetting. <laughs> I was, I was upset too. We actually had to actually tag a little bit onto that episode. So, well, you know, he, okay. So j- just, uh, he, he's a gallery director. So I feel like he might be coming at this from, from a different angle. Um, and and for the record, every time I don't paint for a while, like I come back to it, it's like running after after all of your muscles, after lying down for a long time when all my muscles have atrophied. And then, like I forget how to paint and I also forget what to paint. And I, I just, you know, like, like the first few days, I'm like, I think I'm just going to do like a master copy or something. And then after a few of just playing with you know mongoose hairs and you know <laughs> um you know like like putting a brush to you know to, to panel i'm like oh this is what i this is what i actually want to do for me it always like just painting there's always a high to it like whether or not i know what i'm doing whether or not what i'm doing is anything good just oil paint like the smell of it like i think i smelled it for the first time at 18 and i never quite got over it well, to me, it sounds like your intention is communicating your passion, which is an intent to me. Uh, but I mean, I mean eventually, or, like after I paint for a few days, I find it. Uh, but there's a few days where I'm like, am I even a painter anymore? Like, like, I don't know how to do this. And I don't know what I what I want to do. I just want to do this with these materials. So. That's cool. I mean, that makes sense to me. If if that's what that guy meant, that makes sense well, to me. Yeah, like, I, I actually don't think that's what he meant. But, you know, <laughs> Well, I like that. I like, I mean, it's, it's an honest way of showing things too. Not all paintings are going to have meaning no matter how much intent you try to put in your work. I mean, not every painting is going to be, you know, there's, okay, here's an example. The greatest directors, uh, like even alive, let's say, take a, a Spike Jones, for instance. He makes a lot of commercials that you don't see, but, and it's, you can't say that's art, but what you can say it has it helps bolster him, develop his craft, develop um, his, uh, give him access to money so that he can have time to write this thing that becomes art. So I don't even think all works of art are art for me. And, and, and the stuff that I make, not all things I make are art. They're things that, that are helping me get to art, which has, has to have intention to it for me to, to pass my bar of being art for myself. So I don't know if that's helpful to explain what I'm trying to say, but yeah. You also have a podcast, right? Um, mm-hmm. With Yoshino? Yeah. Well, um, so, so sometimes we've talked about kind of why why we do this, other than just liking to meet cool people. Right? Like, like that's that's definitely been part of it. Why why did that become a thing that you do? I inherited that podcast because when we started No Wave, No Wave was a mix of Low Collective and Artist Encoded, which was the podcast that Yoshino did in order to 
meet and understand artists because he was going through an artistic rut at the time. So I met him on episode seven. He interviewed me and then we hit it off and eventually a year later made no wave. And then as no wave kind of absorbed artist decoded as our a part of our thesis plan for connectivity and communication, I inherited that, uh, the co-host spot there. So uh, Yoshino developed that podcast. He started it. And I am just, I come in and interview people who I'm interested in and best suited to interview. So if they're painters, uh, t- t- typically if I'm, in a, uh, I'm available, I will interview them. Or if they're filmmakers, typically if I'm available, I'll interview them. I do it because I like to, you know, communicate and have a conversation and hopefully change my mind about certain things and expand my understanding. So that's why I do it. And then the podcast itself um, helps us meet different people who are like-minded and help us in our careers. And, and by careers, I don't, I don't mean it from a money-making standpoint, although that can sometimes be a side effect. Uh, often it's about finding new things to explore and higher, higher heights to access via like different people's brains and artistic brains. So it also helps us vet people who we want in no wave too. It's like secretly we ask people on the podcast who we're interested in and if they pass the test, sometimes they're ingested into the system. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice, that's a nice filtration system there. Forcing to talk to you for like an hour or two hours, you know, it's, it helps some for sure. I've only recently realized how much I look forward to these interviews, actually. Like for a while, when I first started doing this, it was just kind of, you know, I was with my uh, toddler all day long and it was something that I could do to get out of the house once a week and, you know, talk to grownups, like talk talk to my friends and, and someone I admired. And right now, like this last few months, especially through the pandemic. I'm like, oh my God, I think this is, this might be the best conversation I have all week. Oh, I appreciate it. I, I, I like being on the other side of the interview. So I'm not because I like to hear my own voice, but because uh, being an interview is hard and I appreciate you both for doing this. It's not easy doing this. You're great. It was inspiring to me. I learned a lot. It was like, uh, yeah, if, if, we, if ours is a filter, you pass the test. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so before, kind of before I stop recording, where can people see your work, you know, your work and Noteweave and, you know, the, um, which I probably just mispronounced, uh, others in South by Southwest? Um, well, uh, you can find me at Justin Dashur, D-A-A-S-H-U-U-R, Hopkins, uh, dot com or at uh, on Instagram. It's it's my name. It's my full name because I'm the only one that has that name in existence now. So I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to use it. Uh, uh, so um, yeah, you can find me there wherever that wherever you find that name. Um, yeah, that's how you can find me. I'm around. I'm always doing stuff. Bonus question: What does death mask and the transgenerational curse mean to you? Okay, so. Um, Okay, so this is very specific to me. Okay, so I feel like I, my family's cursed. <laughs> I'll explain why. And it's a transgenerational curse that I found to be very interesting and strange. And it has to do with this kind of, kind of patriarchal dominance on my family, the Japanese side of my family. So, you know, 600 years ago, there's this guy named uh, Onikojima Yataro, which is uh, my great, great, great direct line to me. 
and uh, he was a very, very famous uh, samurai warrior. Hokusai's done a couple pictures of him, and uh, there's been video game characters based on him. And we know it's a direct line because there's only one family with that name, Oni Kojima, which was combined because his nickname was Demon, which is Oni, because he was such an evil motherfucker. Like, he was so brutal and so awful that he is now celebrated in Japan in big festival floats because of his brutality. And to me, that was so weird and strange that kids are, like, wearing his mask. This guy who probably would behead people like like them, you know, 500 years ago. And then the death mask thing was about... um, Well, let me follow that train of thought a little bit. So, because of the extreme feudal and patriarchal system of Japan, there's been this kind of destruction of, of like people under them, including our, our family. And, and our family was part of the wealthier class because of him up until my um, great grandfather Zenshiro came to America. And Zenshiro was escaping his family to be a car, become a car mechanic, which back then was like being in NASA or something. Right. So he came to America Gave away, gave up all his fortune, and all these things. Next generation ended up in the concentration or the uh, internment incarceration camps in America. And then after that, or during that time, my, my Japanese culture was obliterated from my family. Um, and um, Zenshiro himself was a very domineering guy that had this leftover thing because of the status of our family. And he felt like he could dominate the women in the family, dominate the younger people in the family. And then they ended up in the camps and then all that shit got obliterated anyway. Um, and my mom didn't even know she was Japanese till she was seven because my, my grandparents didn't allow them to speak Japanese because of the shame of it. Right. So there's all this leftover stuff from both post-war and then this weird status and then leaving status and then having nothing anymore and having our cultural culture destroyed that I considered like this weird curse that just ripples through generations. And then death mask, because I thought it was weird that like mostly you just see death masks of men and sometimes men who were just good at killing other men. And so I was like, this one's a, I, and I have nightmares still about this guy, Oni Kojima. So I was like, I'll just make a death mask for this guy to kill this guy and kill my curse. <laughs> So that's why I did it. Very, you know, that's why. That's why I did it. Uh, Justin, that was amazing. Um, j- just, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, um, Marshall asked about that kind of, you know, when, when we're talking before talking to you. And I was like, you know, I don't know Justin really well. He could potentially say something really pretentious and that would derail the whole conversation. And I have to say, I made the wrong call. Um, that was like, like one of the best stories that you could have possibly told. I now wish we had led the podcast of that. Um, thank you so much. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind, and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. 
and follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.